Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Story, the heart of language. Story emotionally moves us to love and hate and can motivate us to change the whole course of our life. Story can lift us beyond the borders of our individuality to imagine realities of other people, times, and places, to empathize with other beings, to extend our supposing far into the universe. Storytelling, both oral tradition and written word, is the foundation of being human. In this edition of Radio Curious, we talk with Christina Baldwin, author of Storycatcher, Making Sense of Our Lives Through the Power and Practice of Story. This is being done in Ukiah in the idea of capturing what is the story of Ukiah as a part of what is the story of Mendocino County to be used in the development of the Ukiah area plan that is now under consideration by the Mendocino County Board of Supervisors. It's not really under immediate consideration, but it's being studied by a group that they've hired. So let's learn about story, talking with Christina Baldwin in an interview from 2006. We began when I asked Christina Baldwin to explain what is story. Story is what I call the heart of language. It's the part of language that really conveys meaning from one person to another. And the way we use it is we put an idea into something that's happening to us or has happened to us. So if you ask me how I am, I can just say, I'm fine, and the conversation is over. Or I can say, well, I woke up this morning, and when I lifted the shades, there was the sunlight, and there was a bird on the branch outside my window, and I thought to myself, this is going to be a good day. You're conveying a picture in the story. Absolutely. And also a thought, and the way I give that moment meaning. So that's why the book's subtitle is Making Sense of Our Lives Through the Power and Practice of Story. That if I just say fine or not fine, it's an automatic response, but it doesn't inform either me or you what is really going on. And it also doesn't open up any potential between us. So if I tell this little story about how happy I am to see sunshine because of where I live, and you live in Phoenix, you may go, well, I woke this morning and I lifted the shade and the sun was there and my heart sank because we've had 127 days of sunlight and I'm praying for rain because. And now we have a whole interesting bridge about how we take one tiny little moment in an ordinary day and we have two different meanings we're making out of it and two different stories going. But that's also comes on, on even a, a closer scale because each of us have a pair of eyes. And if we're looking at the same thing, we see different things. Yes. And what we see is based on our ability to interpret what we have seen in the past and apply it to the present view. And also, if we don't make story out of it, we, we turn it into an opinion of what we're seeing. And then if you and I walk away from that scene with two different opinions, we may, quote, never agree about what we saw. 
But if we stay there and we turn to each other and we begin telling stories about, I saw this, what did you see? And we do that kind of little narrative loop, then what happens is we begin to come to a a kind of common assessment. Not that we have to agree, but we come to a point where we go, oh, I see what you saw. I understand why you saw it that way. And then we don't have opinions that cause us to go into conflict. And I think that that has been the primary role that story has played from the beginning of the language development. You had strangers coming over the hillside who needed to come to a common agreement about how they were going to behave with each other, what they were going to say, um, the story they were going to carry on from that meeting. And it's a profoundly different thing to carry a story on from the little moments in a day than to carry a judgment or an opinion. Yet community stories, stories as told by a community, often form an opinion which could be in disagreement with the opinion or the community story of the group of people who live just over the hill, regardless of what it may be. Yes, and... If we continue to carry it at the level of story, then we can stay in a kind of curiosity with each other about that, what I said a minute ago about, oh, that's how you see it, or isn't that interesting, instead of, well, you're wrong. But that requires uh, being non-judgmental, perhaps being secure enough in yourself so that if someone gives an opinion about a matter, any matter, it wouldn't invade your basic or core beliefs. It does. I mean, but having an opinion and having core beliefs are two different things. Distinguish them for us. There are some basic human values around violence, incest, the protection of children, not poisoning your own fields. There are things like that that over millennia have been both betrayed between people, but also are understood as basic human values. And even if it's a very good story, you're not going to convince me that something that goes against that kind of human value in me is a good idea. But if I come into the room with an opinion about someone who's got a different political idea or a different religious idea or something, and I get into the story with them, I can get into curiosity. For example, one of the things I'm saying to a lot of people right now is we need to get out of the room where we're sitting with people who are like-minded and get into the room where we put ourselves in a kind of conversational diversity and get curious, not get into this kind of ridiculous debate and shouting match. Now let's take a let's take a real hot button issue like homosexuality in the churches. I do some work where I go in and I try to help conversations occur inside a church around an issue like this. And if you put the people who think that um, gays should be allowed in their particular denomination on one side of the room and those who don't on the other, and they just scream at each other for an hour, nobody learns anything. But if you put them in a circle and you say, we're going to practice profound, sacred curiosity here. How did you come to this? 
why does it live in you this way? And don't just quote me three little Bible verses that support your particular view. We're going to explore the territory of the heart. And people are very, very nervous about that because they don't know what the story is of how they came to a particular hot-button belief. So how do you get past this nervousness? You have a commitment from people that they're going to stay with the question. And somebody in that group, I mean, maybe you say, we're going to stay with this question for one hour, and we're going to just travel it together as a group. And if we don't get very far, that's okay. We will have devoted one hour of time to sitting with curiosity rather than judgment. And I've never had a group not say anything or not say anything meaningful in an hour. We get somewhere. Somebody finds in themselves that first thread of story and begins to break it open. And it doesn't matter what the issue is. I mean, I do a lot of story gathering and storytelling in various kinds of business, many times where people can't see their way from where they are now to the next step. But I said, we have to imagine our way there. And the way we imagine our way forward is through story. Let's begin telling the story of how we got here, or let's begin telling the story of where we want to be in five years from now, and how do we get from here to there. And we build bridges. But curiosity is a profound human asset. And I think in the modern day, kind of inundation of, factoids and sound bites and infomercials and everything, our curiosity is just being deadened because we're going, I'm way too overwhelmed to be curious about one more thing or even notice that I am being fed something in the guise of story that is not really story. So I would love to cycle back and just talk a minute, too, about, you know, what is a story? Please tell us what a story is and how it opens space. For me, I use the word in the book, narrative, that it's the narrative heart, and that story is the part of language that is not based on high concept, but the concept is embedded in the magic of scenery, place, time, characters, and events happening to those people. So the story begins once upon a time. Or the story begins, it was a dark and stormy night. Or the story begins, it was a bright and sunny morning. And as soon as we lead in with some little indicator that we're going to go into scene, people's minds, the minds of the listeners, get ready to hear story. And if we go into an intellectual, conceptual basis, it, almost, it literally turns on a different part of our minds neurologically that goes, okay, you've got to think about this without seeing it. But if we indicate that we're going into story, we go into the part of our minds that is much more holistic. Something that we can envision, perhaps with a metaphor. Right. In the book, I talk about all of the quick sound bite kind of information that's coming at us as being like a life raft that's not bound together. And so we keep trying to hold the narrative of our lives together on a daily basis, but it's like we're sprawled on this flotsam and jetsam that keeps falling apart, and we keep trying to hold it together and go, well, how does that relate to this? And how does this piece of information relate to my human values over here on the other side of the raft? 
and it's falling onto the individual human being to keep lacing our lives together through story. Well, Christina Baldwin, author of Story Catcher, Making Sense of Our Lives Through the Power and Practice of Story, I want you to tell us about fire before and after and how we can foment fire to create stories. But first, I want to remind our listeners that we're listening to Radio Curious. We're talking today with Christina Baldwin from her home in Washington State. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Christina, fire, our society before fire and our society after fire, and how fire can brighten and lighten story. Fire is a wonderful metaphor, isn't it? But it is also very, very real. Now, when we live in a world of electricity, we may not think about, we absolutely don't think about fire the way that human beings used to. But we still bring light and and beauty to us through fire contained in perhaps a light bulb. <laughs> yes, or candlelight or whatever. But the, the thing about fire that I want to really remind us is that it literally is the source of human society. That before fire, the only way that our long, long ago ancestors could take care of each other and keep warm was based on body heat so that you had small little traveling groups of hominids walking around, and it was usually a mating pair and a couple of young ones and maybe an elder or one sort of loose young adult that helped. But the way they took care of themselves at the end of the day is they all went into a puppy pile and curled up, and they got through the night or not dependent on body warmth, which means you couldn't get a lot of people living at that level of sustenance. But as soon as our ancestors began to understand how to create fire on demand, they began to be able to cook meat, they began to be able to roast nuts and berries and root vegetables, and they began to be able to welcome strangers into that ring of light and warmth as night fell. The next thing they needed was to know if they welcomed a stranger, was that going to be a friendly experience or a threatening experience. And the way they established that was through turning to language and basically saying, who are you? Do you come with goodwill? I can really imagine that time when people would step into a ring of fire and they would hold their hands open and they would show that they were bringing food, that they were bringing offering, and they would also begin to bring language so that they could say to each other, I'm okay. You can trust me. Here's a piece of something I give to the fire, and we'll share. And then out of that, as people thought, you know, this is a more efficient way to do our living together, you begin to have little traveling bands of people, and then as agriculture develops, you begin to have little villages and people who say, this is our valley, and we're going to grow potatoes here, and all of that kind of thing. So fire is the core of it all. And I think that's why it never goes away. Even when we go out to dinner in a restaurant, if they want us to stay and build relationship with one another, they put a candle in the middle of the table. Do you think that uh, restaurateurs know that that's what they're doing? Absolutely. I do. 
I mean, if you go into a fast food joint, they don't put a candle in the middle because they want you to eat and clear the table for the next person. But I think restaurateurs do know that, and that's why they put the candle down, and then they come back and they say, and could I get you another glass of wine, or would you like coffee, or would you, you know, here's the dessert menu. But they're very unobtrusive. It's like they don't want to necessarily break that moment. They want you to stay, and then, of course, they want you to keep buying these little $5 add-ons to your meal. So, I mean, it's good business for them financially to have people linger and to continue to buy little things as the evening goes on. But also they they get a reputation for good service. They get a reputation for ambiance. They get to advertise this is the kind of place to bring your sweetheart when you want to have a good conversation. So I do think they, they know what they're doing. Just like we do at Thanksgiving or something, and then we put out candles and we make the house be special especially in the in the north in the times of the year when light comes very early we light up the house in a soft glow as well as with electricity so we are in our story and sometimes from within our story it's hard to see the longer or the larger context how can we do that how can we take our lives and put it into a story learn the metaphors and act on it So how we fit our lives into the bigger story is first we really understand that our life is a story, and we practice the story of our lives. And we can practice it by asking other people to tell stories to us, to encourage our children and our elders and so forth to tell us stories and get kind of back in the groove of really listening and eliciting story by saying, and then what happened? Wow, that's very interesting. What happened over here? What was going on for this person? To just keep pulling pieces of story out of people so that we value it again. And another way we can do that that has had a profound impact on my life is I started keeping a journal when I was about 12 years old. And I realized looking back on it now that what I was doing is practicing saying to myself, my life is a story and I need to know what that story is. I wish sometimes I had an identical twin who said, you know, I'm not interested in writing, so I could see the impact of writing on the two of us. But I don't. I just think that probably starting to write that little journal, which I've done pretty consistently in all the decades since, which is now like 50 years, It's the most profound decision I ever made because it has led to everything else I've ever done, and that is I know my life is a story. I don't know how to even tell it to myself, but I'm going to explore that territory and keep making it bigger and bigger territory of what I can say about who I am and what I'm doing here. Well, Christina Baldwin, let me ask you about some of your personal stories that you have caught or that have caught you, that have allowed you to make sense of your life through the practice of story? What stands out? Well, one thing that stands out is Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, which I write about in one of the chapters of the book, because I think that was the moment when I was keeping this little diary that I realized that my life 
and the life of the world going on around me were absolutely interconnected. And, you know, I was just this normal little teenager growing up in the suburban edge of Minneapolis, and somehow when that Cuban Missile Crisis occurred and we had 13 days in which the United States and the then Soviet Union were considering the possibility of global nuclear war, I thought, I have to save the story. I have to save my story. And so I took a banker's box out of uh, the basement that my parents had some old papers in. I took all their papers out. I put in a copy of Life magazine and the Diary of Anne Frank, which was what had inspired me to start writing, some photographs, a newspaper, I don't, you know, a Bible, and my own little diary. And I went out in the woods behind our house, and I buried it under a tree. And I just thought, maybe, maybe, if I don't live, something will find us. And, you know, it was a very dramatic, grandiose gesture, um, but also one I did very privately. I never told that story for a long time. I don't think my parents had any idea I had done that. But something happened for me in that act, and it was this connection between my story and the story. And I went out after the Cuban Missile Crisis was over and dug the box up and took it back in the house and went on with my adolescence. But that learning never left me. Christina, taking that learning and teaching it to a community so that the story can evolve from a community and the community then creates a future that works with everybody, how would you suggest that occur? And maybe it wouldn't work for everybody. It might just work for a lot of people. I think that the the word here is, you know, I talk about the story in kind of a large way. I mean, but I don't mean it's the only story or there is one right story. That for a community to envision how it's going to live its way, from traditional values into the future requires many, many stories breathing together. But coming up with a sense that when you braid all those stories together, there is a common thread. There is something that people go, this is what I believe about why I live here and why I want to imagine my children and grandchildren being able to live here. And... Some of this makes me very comfortable and some of it makes me uncomfortable, but I know why I want to stay in this place, why I'm willing to commit to this community. I was just reading in the newspaper the other day about a Native American man who is now a guide at one of the Spanish missions in California, and he says it's part of his guiding through this mission to talk about the impact of the Spanish priests and missionaries on his tribal history. And he has come to a point of integration in himself where he can do that without a lot of anger. But he says it's important for people coming in the 21st centuries to look at this old adobe building to think about the story of why it's here and what it means that it's here, not just for white people, but for all people. And so he's come, he's integrated his lineage and his personal life experience into a story that he can share with people. That's the kind of community building that I think story can do, where 
we hold diversity. We hold very different experience. Uh, in a town like Ukiah, you have many different groups that have come at different times. On the island where I live, we have this phenomenon of people wanting to come here for the beauty and the need to integrate them into that same kind of history and how do you live here and how do you live here sustainably. This isn't a floating suburb. This is an island, and how do we help people develop a sense of how you live on an island when they're coming from big urban areas that they don't know they don't know what to do with their landscaping that's sustainable. They don't know what, how do you take care of a septic tank. I mean, we have to teach people constantly how to live in this community, get grounded on the earth that's here, and then reach out and discover the other people that they want to get to know. Well, Christina Baldwin, author of Storycatcher, Making Sense of Our Lives Through the Power and Practice of Story, hopefully making sense of the community of Ukiah and creating a vision for the future is something that uh, you may participate in with us here in Ukiah and other cities. Before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately, Christina? I'm reading a lot of books right now that are about helping people understand story, and one of the ones that I really like is Margaret J. Wheatley's book, Turning to One Another, Simple Conversations to Restore Hope to the Future. And she really is talking about the giving people a structure to sit down, look at each other, and have conversations based on a simple question, 10 simple questions that really go into deep storytelling with one another. And one of the things that I love about the book is that she and I, I think, similarly agree that it is the question that invokes the good stories. So um, I'll just pull a couple of her questions out. What is my faith in the future? What is the relationship I want with the earth? What is my unique contribution to the whole? And those questions can lead people into a marvelous blend of thoughtful dialogue. Christina Baldwin, thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. Christina Baldwin is the author of Storycatcher, Making Sense of Our Lives Through the Power and Practice of Story. The book that she recommends is Turning to One Another, Simple Conversations to Restore Our Hope for the Future by Margaret J. Wheatley. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 
1-800-227-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.